0: Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth podcast, the King of the Road edition, as we catch up with Peter King from NBC Sports in the middle of his annual NFL training camp tour. He'll share his thoughts on Joe Burrow, the Bengals free agent acquisitions, and what it was like to stand next to Paul Brown at practice at the start of his sports writing career. After that, I'll share some thoughts on the Jesse Bates contract situation, and I'll go one-on-one with a player who will see his first game action in 715 days when the Bengals open the preseason on Saturday night at Tampa Bay. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer Refresh the Game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered Write to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since Ernie Johnson's speech to the Alabama football team. Ernie Johnson, the host of Inside the NBA on TNT, was recently invited by Alabama coach Nick Saban to give a motivational speech to the Crimson Tide. In it, he discusses his son, Michael, who is adopted from Romania, with what was later determined to be muscular dystrophy. Rather than summarize Ernie's speech, I strongly encourage you to watch it. Just search for Ernie Johnson, Alabama, and it will pop right up. I promise you it's the best 5 minutes and 19 seconds you'll spend all week. Now, let's get to football. Peter King from NBC Sports has an annual tradition of hopscotching around the country from training camp to training camp to learn as much as he can about all 32 teams before the start of the season. I caught up with him first thing in the morning from his hotel room via Zoom this week to discuss the 2021 Bengals and more. Peter, you ranked the Bengals 27th in your offseason power rankings, which is certainly understandable after six wins in the last two years but you wrote that you are optimistic about their future. So what are the reasons for your optimism?
1: I think Joe Burrow is Dan Fouts. And uh, I think anytime you believe in your franchise that you have got your quarterback of the future, that's a gigantic help for the team. And the Bengals, for the first time since Carson Palmer, think they've got... Their long-term quarterback now that's all due respect to Andy Dalton and I think history is going to judge Andy Dalton far more fondly than probably the average Bengals fan will because look to me and I'm not equating Andy Dalton to Matthew Stafford but when your franchise doesn't have everything together your quarterback can be really good and it may not show in the one loss column Andy Dalton was a damn good quarterback for that franchise at a time when they didn't have all the answers and they still don't. And, you know, we probably, you got to go back to the days of Asias and White Collinsworth to win this team. You really felt this team was, was very close. Now the Bengals made the playoffs with Andy Dalton, but I don't know that anybody ever thought that they were close or that, They were going to be one Joe Montana drive away from winning a Super Bowl. I have have not felt that about the Bengals since the 80s. And I don't know that this uh, version, this iteration of the Bengals will be the same way. But, you know, the fact is, if you have a quarterback, you've got the most important person in your franchise. Not the most important player on your team, but you got the most important person in your franchise and the Bengals have them.
0: The sad thing about Andy Dalton, from my perspective, was two thousand fifteen. They were ten and two. They were the number one seed in the AFC at the time, and he broke his thumb. We'll never know if that was the year that he might have earned that love and respect uh, that yeah. hasn't really gone to him.
1: I, I look. I am one of these people. I like the fact that you know, and obviously, I broke into this business covering the Bengals in nineteen eighty four, and I have tremendous. Tremendous fondness for the city, uh, for my time there, and quite honestly, for the franchise. I know it may not seem that way sometimes when I write about them, but I I really, uh, I mean, I, I really have great, um, kind of great fondness for, you know, what the Bengals try to be, really. I mean, they have their faults, but I have great fondness for, the attempts that they make and what they try to be. Um, you know, like one thing I, I've always thought, why wouldn't you want your coaches to go out on the road scouting? They're the people who have to coach the team. Why the separation of church and state with coaches and personnel people? I just don't think that's smart. Um, you know, for people who criticize the Bengals for things like that and for being cheap. I say that's how the Dallas Cowboys built the dynasty. They sent Jimmy Johnson and his staff on the road for a month and a half in that scouting process. And that landed them so many good players. And I I don't want to get off on a tangent, but (laughs) there are a lot of ways to skin the cat. The biggest way to start to skin the cat or to skin the Bengal is to get the quarterback and they got him.
0: Well, while we're on the subject of uh, Joe Burrow, after watching him a little bit at LSU and then watching him with the Bengals a little bit last year, and more importantly, talking to a lot of people about him, do you have a favorite observation or anecdote or anything along those lines that really gets to the heart of Joe Burrow for you?
1: You know, Joe Burrow, you know, he looks like he should be selling insurance for Western Southern life. He, (laughs) But he's so he's such uh, he's such a badass, and you know I'm not I'm not breaking any ground there. But he is so tough; you can just tell. You know, I could tell this. I don't have an anecdote because honestly, Dan, I don't know Joe Burrow. You know, I've talked to him a couple of times. I don't know him, Um, so it'd be stupid for me to say I know Joe Burrow because I don't. But I think a couple of things that really stick out, like, you know, his dad, I think his dad and mom did a really good job raising him because they raised him to be, you know, independent and tough and, you know, to be able to take the crap that goes on in a young person's life sometimes. I mean, his dream was to, growing up in Ohio, was to be the quarterback of the Buckeyes. And he goes there and he gets hurt and he gets beat out. And he's got a transfer like he left Columbus, Ohio with his tail tucked between his legs. And, you know, whoever thought it's funny about how quarterbacks work in the NFL right now. You know, uh, no, a year ago today, nobody has had heard of Zach Wilson. Okay. Zach Wilson turned out to be the second player in the draft. Similarly, the year before that if you had talked about Joe Burrow who had a decent uh 2018 season at LSU you would have said eh, you know fourth fifth round pick maybe at best day 2 but probably day 3 and then he just comes out on fire and i think the one thing i remember in the run up to the draft the thing that really impressed me was how in the game against Alabama, that was the mega game of the year. Uh, And I asked him about this. And also I've asked Joe Brady about this, uh, you know, his former offensive coordinator uh, at LSU. He came out firing. He doesn't need the three or four quick little check downs against the great Nick Saban's defense to get confidence in himself. He doesn't need that. He just, you know, hey, let's go. You know, let's throw a 25-yard uh, in-cut on the first uh, first pass of the game or whatever it was. But it was a downfield throw. And I just I have great admiration for that. I think the one other thing I would say about him in today's NFL, um, and especially with the Bengals because you don't know and I don't know how they're going to protect them, I mean, you know, it'll it, it's uh, it's wonderful to take Jamar Chase, and I, I don't kill him for the pick or anything like that. But you know, if Panay Sewell is a is a poor man's Anthony Munoz, it's not going to look like the right pick, obviously. But you know, we'll see what happens. But I I think what you saw in his rookie year is his ability to take a lot of hits, after you know until the ultimate one, his ability to take a lot of hits and to keep functioning in a good manner. The game against Philadelphia, he got the living crap beat out of him, and he just kept coming back for more, and I remember listening to him on the Collinsworth podcast a few, I don't know, maybe three months ago, talking about, you know, kind of what he felt was kind of the respect he got from the Eagles after that game, and and Chris was talking about it as well, but that that is going to play well in his own locker room. So I think he's I think he's well-respected getting well-respected by the rest of the league. And you can tell he's well-respected in his own locker room.
0: We're talking to Peter King from NBC Sports. You did an interview with my colleague, uh, Jeff Hobson last year, where you said the Bengals are going to love the free agent acquisition of Von Bell. And it definitely played out that way. So, this year they go back into the free agent pool. Trey Hendrickson, Chidobe Awuzie, Mike Hilton, Riley Reeve, Larry Ogan, Joby. So, they spent big, largely on defense. Do any of those names move the needle for you? Anybody you think that's really going to work out well?
1: I mean, Riley Reef is a short timer. Um, he's a Scotch tape at a position that's desperately needed, you know, that they needed to upgrade. The Bengals hit a cold streak in evaluating offensive linemen gone are the days when Jim McNally hit a lot of home runs with guys like Kuzurski and Reimers and Scrafford and all those guys that just hasn't happened in recent years. So you got to spend money in free agency to make up for the fact that you can't find Max Montoya anymore. Um, so, but you know, I think he's an important one, obviously, the guy who I like the most is Mike Hilton. I think he's a. Uh, I think he's one of these players. Every team's got two or three of them who you just think, man, people don't appreciate him for the player who he is and the sort of force that he is on a defense. I think he's going to be an impact player. Now, Hendrickson's interesting because, you know, I think what the Bengals saw in him. Uh, And what they, what they, I mean, they saw a lot of disruption, obviously, you know, on the front seven, which, you know, when you lose Carl Lawson, that's what, that's what you need. And you lose, uh, uh, what's his name, Uh, Carlos Dunlap to Seattle. So I think the difference, though, uh, for him is going to be comes from a place where he had a lot of help. And he had a lot of other people on the line who, uh you know, basically, uh, you know, I'm not saying made it easy for him, but, you know, when you're on a defense that has a lot of talent and a lot of players who need to get the attention of the offense, it's it's more advantageous, especially for a rusher to make impact. So, you know, he's not going to have the same kind of help that he had. I, I, I mean, if you think about it, no loss in Uh, no Geno Atkins right and no uh, Dunlop I mean that's a lot of big league players uh, missing from a defense that wasn't great to begin with it was good I think at times but it wasn't great to begin with so there's going to be an awful lot of there's going to be eyes on him I think he's going to have to be better than he was in New Orleans to have the same sort of uh, sort of statistical impact that he had in New Orleans.
0: What do you think constitutes a successful season for the Bengals this year?
1: Keeping um, Joe Burrow healthy and just his continued development as a player. Um, I think the Bengals are going to play some games like the '80s Chargers. I think they're going to they're going to lose some forty-one to thirty-three, and they're going to win a game 38 to 35, a few games. I think that's the style of game they're going to play. I think the Bengals will be one of the three or four most exciting teams in football. That doesn't necessarily equate to wins. I mean, if they win six or seven games, I think that would be a really good accomplishment. And I do believe they'll, they'll win a game this year where people say, whew, where did that come from? Like they'll beat Cleveland, Cleveland, uh, or or Baltimore or Pittsburgh. And like, I, I think they'll probably go like two and four in the division, maybe even three and three. Just because as long as Burrow plays, they're going to be very hard to stop every Sunday.
0: Let's talk about your Bengals roots for a moment. You uh, covered the Bengals in 84, the start of your NFL reporter career for the Enquirer. And that meant hanging out at training camp with Paul Brown. What did that football education do for you that uh, still helps to this day?
1: Probably the biggest regret I have in 41 years as a sports writer is that I didn't go back to my room at Wilmington College during training camp uh, every day and write down five things that Paul Brown told me. I, I can't believe, I mean, and you know, you're standing on the sidelines and it's, it's been 37 years. So I can't sit here and say, yep, on this day. I remember one thing he said to me vividly. We were standing on the sidelines. Now, in those days, I would say the vast majority of days, the Bengals practiced twice. I mean, you talk about not having sports science. I mean, imagine this. Okay, Wilmington, Ohio, uh, you know, which in July and August is – as anybody who lives in Cincinnati, any place around Cincinnati in July and August, it's going to be very humid. And day after day after day, you know, uh, in the cornfields of Wilmington, Ohio, uh, the Bengals going out and practicing from nine to 11 and from three to five. And I mean, how does a human being do that? But that's what the Bengals did. That's what every team did. And it seems insane to think about that. But I'd say, most of those practices were padded and so it just was a it was a it was so arduous and so hard and so tough and one day i made a comment to paul brown standing there with his panama hat on the on the sidelines just i probably watched on average every day i stood next to him for an hour i mean it, i just watched a lot of practice with paul brown and one day i said i'll tell you the sun kind of beats the crap out of you out here. It's just, it's so hot. I mean, every day, you know, he loved watching offensive line drills. And I just said, man, I I just, it's amazing that year after year after year, you come back and you just watch this day after day. And he goes, young man, this is our lifeblood. You know, and that's all he had to say. You know, he was like, oh, you know, what he was saying to me was, hey, listen, if you don't like it, go cover field hockey, you know? (laughs) Uh, But he was, he was just, in the end, I know that people who have played for him, you know, if you ask Jim Brown about this, the last thing he would say is he was so kind. Uh, But when Paul Brown, when my father, I left Cincinnati to go to work in New York uh, in 85. And the next year, my father died. He had cancer and he died. But right before he died, I was, I had a conversation with Mike Brown and I told him that my dad was probably not gonna make it. Uh, he had lung cancer and all that. And like five days later in the mail at my house in Enfield, Connecticut, uh, Paul Brown's book that he wrote with Jack Clary showed up and there was a letter with it. He had signed it and there was a letter with it that said, Mr. King, you raised a fine boy. And that was just, <laughs> I mean, I get choked up even thinking about it right now, Uh, but he was quite a guy, I really liked him. But that was a tremendous time to start in this business. You know, Dan, right now, you know, I tell people, what's it like covering the NFL? In 2000, about 20 reporters, including me, covered the scouting combine in Indianapolis. In 2020, right before the start of the pandemic, uh, 1,243 reporters were credentialed to cover the combine. It's, it's insane. It's, I, I, don't, I don't know how possibly anybody can, can look at football and say, hey, that's just what we need, what, what we need, more coverage. But in those days, the, the day before the, the draft in 1984, Sam White sat me down in his office, a young beat reporter. I was on the job for maybe two weeks. He sat me down in the office and he told me, "Just don't say anything to anybody outside of this market. No internet in those days. No anything." He told me who they were going to draft. I mean, he told, "Okay, first round, we're going to take Ricky Hunley. Uh, you know, then later in the round, we're going to take Boomer Asiasen, Stanford Jennings. All I mean, it, it is it was insane. And that's the, and 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 it and training camp and coverage and all that stuff. It was just." a lot easier in those days and it was a lot easier to find things out in those days so i really enjoyed it
0: that's actually one of the things i admire most about your work the technology changes the industry changes and rather than do what you have to do kicking and screaming you seem to embrace it so for example we're doing this by zoom a lot of people hate the fact that we have to do so many interviews by zoom these days, but I get the sense that you're like, well, okay. It does give me the opportunity to talk somebody, talk to somebody and have eye to eye contact on the opposite side right. of the, the country at a moment's notice.
1: The minute I say, oh man, I long for the old days you know, take me out behind the barn and shoot me. I mean, I just, I, it, it's just, it doesn't do any good. Nobody wants to hear that. Who who in the world would sympathize with a 64 year old sports writer because the world has changed? Am I am I do I long for the days when I spread four newspapers out on the table and read them for an hour and a half? Of course I do. I love newspapers, uh, but you know what? That's that's yesterday. So you better adjust. And in my opinion, what I tell young journalists and. You know, I've been back to Ohio University a few times, and, and then, you know, kids coming up these days, I just said, listen, this business will always need storytellers. You need to find out the story. And when you find out the story, there will be a way to tell the story. I don't know what it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to be. And that's why every opportunity you have, uh, you, 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 can you learn how to do podcasting? We'll do that. You know, try that, try everything that comes along. And I remember uh, a young woman from my home at the time where we were living in New Jersey. Her name is Emily Kaplan. She now works at ESPN. She's a high school student there. I got to know her. She just desperately wanted to be in journalism. And so I, you know, advised her a little bit. And the one thing I said to her about her time at Penn State, I said, if I were you, one year I'd work for the school paper, one year I'd work for the TV station, one year I'd work for the radio station. one year I would try to do some sort of blog or uh, internet something uh, it, it, you know, but I would try to do everything you know at a huge university like that and because I think you know I told her you don't know at the end of these four years what the world is going to, is going to look like and heck she's done a great job she worked for me a little bit at sports illustrated now is at espn doing hockey and she's on around the horn and she's just a rising star but you've got to take that seriously at your heart you've got to be a reporter but you've also got to understand that you need to be flexible and quite honestly it's fun you know, I loved being, I love working for the Inquirer. I loved it, man. Those are some of the great years of my life. Um, It's all warm and fuzzy to me. Um, But I do think that there has to be a part of your ethos in this job that says, whatever the way to get the information out, I'm going to try to master that. And that's really what I've tried to do over the years. And you know, it's really been a fun, a uh, fun world. I can't believe it's been 41 years since I walked into the Enquirer at 617 Vine Street. Um, and probably everybody who listens to that will say, what, the inquiry used to be on Vine Street? <laughs> but, you know, it just, uh, time changes, but uh, I, you know, I got nothing but love for how my career started.
0: Well, the highlight of my week is Monday morning, approximately 6.30 a.m., big cup of coffee and football morning in America. So I look forward to uh, your travels uh, during training camp this week and, and learning stuff on Monday morning, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.
1: Hey, Dan, it's been wonderful. Please call anytime.
0: Peter May rue the day he encouraged me to call anytime. Now let's get to Jesse Bates. Last week, he agreed to join Dave Lapham and me on one of the live training camp reports we've been doing on the Bengals' social media channels. He agreed to do that before a report came out on ESPN that he and the team are not making progress toward a contract extension. To his credit, Jesse did not cancel the interview we had scheduled, and in case you missed it on Thursday, here's that five-minute conversation. Jesse, we appreciate you coming on with us this morning. I suppose we need to get the elephant in the room out of the way right off the bat, and that is the state of your contract negotiations. A report came out a couple of days ago suggesting that the two sides are still a considerable distance apart. How do things stand right now, and are you still optimistic that a deal can get done before the start of the season?
2: Yeah, um, I think as far as my contract goes, um, I guess I haven't done enough yet. Uh, to be considered one of the, you know, the top safeties um, in this league. So, uh, which is fine, Um, that's fine with me. I'm going to go to work just like any other day. uh, My first three years being here, Um, you know, just being able to have that open conversation with my agent has been great Um, in regards to um, just having the conversation uh, very open. Um, And I think this will probably be my last time that I speak on the contract. just because I think it can get a little messy um, as far as, you know, um, thinking about it too much. Um, but, you know, I, I've been out there practicing every day. Uh, I have a, a, a goal that I want to reach personally, um, and I know I have to get better um, to help this team get to where we need to be. So, um, like I said, I'll let my agent work out the numbers and stuff like that. I'm going to be the uh, best teammate, best leader that I can be uh, for the 2021 Bengals. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. And I know what you will be all of that, and uh, you're a humble guy as
3: well because I think you are the best safety in the National Football League. Three, three interceptions last year. You got your hand on 15 other footballs, broke up 15 other passes amongst the top handful in the National Football League. Your recognition, your range, all those things are, are incredible. Plus, your uh, your tackling. You know, you're getting people on the ground. Is that something that was really important to you to get that? Uh, you know that. Be known as somebody that's gonna when it, when it hits you, your your journey ends.
2: Yeah, um, I think that's a mentality that every safety kind of has, um, especially for me as a post safety. I feel like I get a lot of opportunities to um, kind of lay that statement, like, "Hey, don't come across the middle or you know the deep balls or uh, no fly zone type of thing." So, uh, like I said, this isn't about me. Um, this is about you know the Cincinnati Bengals, and I'm just excited to be a part of it.
0: Jesse, if somebody asked me. What position group has been most impressive so far in training camp? I would say the defensive backs, the additions like Mike Hilton and Chidobe Awuje have had excellent camps so far. Do you agree that the group has performed extremely well in the first, well, it's nearly two weeks now of training camp?
2: Yeah, I think we've done a really good job of just being able to set the standard, um, starting with our group. Um, yeah, we, as a defense, we want to be great, but I think um, as a secondary, uh, I hope every you know position group is kind of thinking of, you know, we have to be the ones to set the tone. Um, it's the same thing I've always preached to me and Vaughn. I feel like the team kind of goes as we go um, on the defensive side. So um, I think that everybody's kind of accepted that kind of mindset and um, it's definitely kind of paid off um, and shown um, that kind of mindset throughout training camp. And so uh, the next step is making sure that we get, you know, the twos and the threes, um, you know, up to speed as well as we get into this preseason stuff and uh, make sure they put good stuff on film. Because, um, I mean, even if it doesn't work out here, uh, there's there's going to be some great film for the, those guys to um, go on throughout their career. So, um, like I said, you just got to understand all, all sides of the of the business and um, just being able to have some veterans in that room has, has definitely helped us um, have some success early on in training camp. Gates
3: and uh, Bell, the killer bees, uh, no question about it. But like you said, veterans in the room have seen a lot of snaps, uh, have seen all the route combinations. Recognition from everybody in that back end has been extraordinary. And the biggest key, communication. You know, you can't talk enough back there. And you guys have talked a lot, making sure you're all on the same page. Has that been a big key to the success?
2: Yeah, like I said, just being able to have those veterans that have seen a lot of football, um, seeing a lot of route combinations, seeing um, how, how do we get beat in quarters, how do we get beat in 3J, um, just stuff like that, being a, being able to have experience um, and not just always getting it from the coach, uh, I think has definitely helped us. Um, and I think that we're not being very silent. Uh, we're not being quiet about, you know, holding that as in a secret. Uh, we're able to pass that down to the younger guys. And I think um, they've done a hell of a job as well. So, Um, Like I said, I'm excited to actually be able to be ready for a game plan and and get things installed. Um, That's when we'll really figure out what we're about. So um, we'll we'll start with Tampa Bay, week one preseason. I think we're playing the first couple series, so that'll be very exciting.
0: All right, let's get back to Jesse's contract. I have a 15-year-old son who probably loves the Bengals more than he loves me. On Tuesday at 3.18 in the afternoon, he sent me a text that read, Why no Bates extension? He was reacting to that tweet sent out by Jeremy Fowler of ESPN that said the following The Bengals and safety Jesse Bates III are not expected to reach a contract extension at this time, per source. Sides not progressing toward a deal. That tweet allowed me to have a teaching moment with my son about contract negotiations, posturing, and Bengals history. The source, was obviously Jesse's agent, and I don't dispute what he told Jeremy Fowler. I don't know what each side is asking for, and they could very well be at a standstill. But as I told my son, an agent tells a reporter that for a reason, to put public pressure on the team in negotiations. That's posturing. Sometimes it's done publicly, and sometimes it's done behind closed doors. And don't get me wrong, I'm not faulting Jesse's agent. He's trying to get his client the best possible deal. But all of this is not unusual when it comes to big contract extensions, and when you look at Bengals' history, when they prioritize giving one of their top young players a second contract, the deal almost always gets done, and it often happens near the end of training camp. Will that be the case with Jesse Bates? I honestly don't know, but as I told my son, let's see what happens over the next few weeks. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. When the Bengals open the preseason on Saturday, we will not see Joe Burrow, although Zach Taylor has not ruled out playing him at some point in the preseason. Brandon Allen will be the Bengals' starting quarterback on Saturday, followed by former Vanderbilt star Kyle Shermer, who joined the Bengals' practice squad last December. He played in four preseason games for the Kansas City Chiefs two years ago. In fact, he threw a touchdown pass against Cincinnati. And I spoke to Kyle this week about getting another opportunity to play. The last time you got to play in a game was the 2019 preseason because there were no preseason games last year. How fired up are you just to get out there and play again?
4: Yeah, I'm excited. Anytime you're a competitor, you can... uh... And you line up against a different set of guys, you, you know, the competitor and you gets all fired up. So we'll be ready to roll and, uh, yeah, fired up to get out there.
0: The Bengals will wind up keeping at least three quarterbacks between the roster and the practice squad. Do you consider the preseason games to be pretty vital to try to earn one of those spots?
4: Yeah, I think every day, you know, uh, you know, practice and the preseason games are vital. You know, every meeting, you know, every, every lift, you know, anytime you're around your teammates, around the coaches, everybody. You know you're, you're auditioning, and um, you know I want to be a part of the squad, and um, you know I'm looking forward for, you know to the preseason games. But you know every day in practice has been, you know, full go for me. So yeah,
0: we're chatting with quarterback Kyle Shermer. You spent your rookie year with Kansas City, partly on the practice squad, active for a little bit uh, during the season. And that year, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Describe the experience of being part of that tremendous Kansas City team.
4: You know, it was a phenomenal experience. You know, I, I learned a lot um, in my time there, my year there, uh, met a lot of great people, uh, interacted with a lot of great, uh, you know, coaches and players and uh, just try to take as much as I could from that experience and apply it, you know, in my day-to-day life and, you know, here at the Bengals, uh, you know, however it helps me. So, yeah.
0: As football fans, we've seen Patrick Mahomes do some incredible things—no look passes, left-handed passes, etc. Do you have a great behind-the-scenes thing that you saw Patrick Mahomes do
4: that would amaze us? It's funny. A lot of those behind-the-back, you know, no look passes he did in practice. So it was, it was almost like not a surprise to us when it, he did in a game. But uh, you know, Patrick's a phenomenal player, and uh, you know, it, there's a lot of fun stories. You played at Vanderbilt. You had a tremendous college
0: career, breaking all of Jay Cutler's passing records with the Commodores. But it's a challenge for a quarterback at Vanderbilt. You're competing in the SEC. I think it's fair to say that the talent gap is probably there uh, in most games that you played in. How did that prepare you for the NFL?
4: Yeah, I think you have to appreciate every bit of the process, you know, um, leading up to game day. Um you know, in-season training camp, off-season, you know, your day-to-day work and practice and your off-season prep, you know, every little bit of time that you spend is crucial. Um, and I just gained an appreciation for, you know, trying to be a football player on and off the field. And, um, you know, it was, it was a tremendous experience, you know, I I, uh, I take great pride in my experience at Vandy. Your father is Pat Shermer, former
0: NFL head coach with Cleveland and the New York Giants. Now the offensive coordinator for the Broncos. Did football become an obsession at an early age because of that for you?
4: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I uh, it was always cool growing up around NFL facilities, watching uh, you know professionals work, and um, you know just be around football all the time. It was it was a lot of fun, and it uh, it really gave me a lot of experience at a young age that. You, know, you can't replicate, and it's, it was, uh, so yeah, I have really enjoyed being a coach's kid growing up. Were any of the great quarterbacks that he coached
0: especially good to you when you were a little kid?
4: Oh yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, all the guys in Philly, uh, Donovan McNabb, Koy Detmer, A.J. Feely when he was in Philly, Sam Bradford in St. Louis. Um, who else? She's uh, Colt McCoy, Brandon Weeden in Cleveland. I uh, can't say that too loud here being on the Bengals, but, um, but you know, a lot of guys, you know, and uh, you know, like I said, it was it was a privilege growing up, you know, around the game, around professionals, seeing how serious but fun, you know, uh, this job, I guess, is, and, um, you know, so it was a privilege. Kyle, I appreciate your time.
0: Best of luck against the Bucks and throughout the preseason. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.